Welcome, Ed. Thanks, Ash. You know, actually, uh, this is uh, we're doing this on a Thursday uh, coming up for an, a Monday. I wanted to give a shout out because it's a Monday that it's Veterans Day in uh, the U.S. My dad, he was a veteran. Uh, many uh, people in my family were are veterans. And so I think that uh, just want to say thank you to everyone who has uh, helped keep the freedom that we're uh, getting right now in, in taping this. Very well said, Ed. Yes, thank you for your service. Exactly. So uh, RVDB, you, you, you didn't do your famous, uh, you know, it's Monday, you know, what, what's going on, Ash? Just give me a little bit more chill. We're doing an AMA. It's just a conversation between two guys. Let's uh, maybe dispense with the television uh, pomp and circumstance today. Yes. Okay, let's let's do it then. All right, let's just dive right in. These are questions that we got from Real Vision subscribers. Uh, the first one's really actually an interesting one, uh, and I'll start with you, Ed. How do you see your role growing and or changing as Real Vision grows and expands its effort into education or other areas? Uh, good question. I, I was just reading uh, a version of that that uh, we sent over. Here, here's how I'm thinking about it is that, you know, Real Vision's all about the democratization of finance. And the way I think about the democratization of finance is, is that you're getting a professional level education slash uh, understanding for a, a, a ridiculously low price, what you might pay to subscribe to a newspaper or, you know, you might subscribe to uh, so, some other ma some magazine that that's an incredible value. You know, I, I think that the sort of things that we see on Real Vision uh, are the kinds of things that you might pay $40,000 for as a, a uh, institutional investor. I know newsletters that uh, you pay that much in order to get it. So I think that when you talk about social, the democratization of finance, that's really what it's all about is giving people, you know, the inside scoop, so to speak, at a, a rate that is consumer friendly. And so when you ask the question, how do I see my role changing? I don't see it changing in certain ways. I think that that's what, what we're all about. We're about educating. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's probably an incomplete answer on some levels. I think that uh, as we have more and more content on Real Vision, I think our role changes in terms of understanding that we have a more, a, a wider audience that we're going to, and we have to be able to tailor of what we do for that audience. So me personally, I don't think that my role per se changes, but in terms of the back end, in terms of how we present what we're giving, I think that there needs to be uh, different offerings in terms of for different people, right. more specialization, more customization, because people are at different points in terms of their learning uh, on that learning curve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I also think it's interesting because we, we're kind of creating a category here. Uh, Real Vision definitely isn't news. Uh, we talk about the news. We analyze the news. Uh, and uh, as the subscriber points out, we're definitely expanding uh, into education. And so it's a, I think it's an incredibly exciting time because we're doing things that have never been done before uh, in, uh, in this space. Uh, so that, I think, is incredibly exciting. My role actually is changing a little bit more than yours because uh, now I'm straddling the line of uh, talking about macro and traditional capital markets uh, and also obviously expanding the uh, Bitcoin, crypto, digital asset, distributed ledger tech side of Real Vision, uh, where we're doing uh, 
exactly the same thing that we're doing on the RV Classic side, which is uh, all the points that you just uh, mentioned, expanding uh, the definition of what analysis means and uh, moving into education. So I think it's an incredibly exciting time. And actually, this question has a second part, uh, which is if you had to create a segment of your own, what would it be about and why? Yeah. And and by the way, I, I, I'll ask you a question on that because you're at a, a prior point uh, in in your, your cycle. You're starting fresh, whereas Real Vision Classic is you know further along. How is it different for you? Uh, maybe you can answer that after I answer this this part of the question. Uh, my own segment, honestly, Ash, uh, you, you know, bandwidth constraints uh, aside, because you and I, we we definitely have some bandwidth constraints. I'd love to do a weekly uh, where we just uh, talk. You know, we open up some beers, wine, whatever it might be, and then we review what happened during the the week. If we could do that, you know, in an in informal way, a, a version of what we're doing now, but one that you know puts everything together that happened in the week and how we're thinking about it very informally. Uh, maybe even, you know, talk to some of our viewers uh, here and there in, in, the, in, the, in the, and make it live or whatever. I don't know, but that's what I would do. Yeah. You know, I would probably just say, first of all, that one of the things that I think is really cool about Real Vision is that we don't have like a, like a marketing products team that creates uh, segments or shows. We do it ourselves. Uh, obviously, I've worked at some very big news organizations, and typically in those spots, uh, you have people tell you, we need this show, we need something to fill that gap, we've got something in this time slot. That's not the way it works here. Uh, the editorial people who are actually creating the content come up with the shows. Um, you know, right now, uh, I'm actually working on some really interesting things uh, with Sebastian Munjaba uh, and our uh, and our producer Nico uh, to uh, to create new content. One of the things that we're looking uh, to do, and we plan on rolling it out this year, uh, is a new crypto podcast. We're very excited about this. I know you and I have talked about podcasts before. It's just a question of the the time constraint and the bandwidth constraint for us. Uh, and we're also talking about uh, doing. Uh, some equivalent, hopefully, of a Real Vision Daily briefing type of show on the crypto side. We're really excited about that. I don't think we have the bandwidth to do it daily right now. In fact, I know that we don't, so we're thinking about it as a weekly show, uh, hopefully to roll out sometime uh, very early in the new year. And we're, we're incredibly excited about it. Great. Yeah, yeah, that does sound exciting. Yeah. Here's one, uh, Ed, to, I'm going to throw this one to you. If you're filming this RVDB on a Thursday, if the election hasn't been called by that time, can you share your analysis of who you will think will win and why? Yeah, that is interesting. Um, I think, uh, you know, here's my framework for thinking about uh, the election. Actually, by the way, interestingly enough, I just had a conversation with David Metzner, who's a managing partner at ACG Analytics, and we went over all of this. He definitely changed my view and how I'm thinking about it. He was very optimistic. But the, the way that I'm thinking about it is, is there, there are multiple configurations possible uh, that, you know, you have the presidency, you have the House, and you have the Senate, and how they're configured is uh, is going to change uh, what what you can do. So, as an example, I think that you know the House, it, it, whether or not the the majority that the Democrats have is expanded or or contracted, doesn't really matter in terms of uh, what happens there. What is interesting, and I asked David Metzner about this, is uh, does Nancy Pelosi get a free pass? I she kind of screwed up in terms of not going for a package uh, with uh, uh, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump 
and now she's behind the eight ball. Is she going to pay the price as a Speaker of the House? Is someone else going to replace her? He said he doesn't think that's going to happen. But, you know, because they have a, 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 a slim down number, maybe she does pay the price. I don't know. But that's one thing to think about for the House. Then you have the Senate. You have two potential runoffs there in Georgia. Um, it, right now, it looks like it's going to be a Republican uh, uh, Senate, but it could easily be a Democratic Senate as well. Uh, I think it's more likely to be Republican. And so Mitch McConnell would be the leader rather than Chuck Schumer. Then we have the uh, the presidency. I'm thinking that given what we know about where the counts are now, uh, and there are six states that are outstanding, that's Georgia, North Carolina, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Alaska, uh, Nevada, and Arizona. Between those six, uh, all of those are, are states that Trump held, and we're at 253 for Biden. I don't really think that Biden's going to lose. I think that he will pick up the 17 uh, that he needs to get to 270. That's very likely. Uh, and in any lawsuits are just going to uh, to draw out what is uh, inevitable. The, ju the judges don't want to get involved in this uh, in any way, shape or form. Uh, so I, I think it's likely that Biden will, will be there. So my likely outcome at this point, uh, it may change, obviously, by the time this comes out, is uh, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. And uh, this is what... Uh, this is what David Metzner was saying, and he actually is fairly optimistic. The markets, as we're speaking, Ash, are bullish. I mean, my screen is green everywhere as a result of this. We're talking Bitcoin. We're talking gold. We're talking silver. We're talking all shares, especially uh, the Nasdaq. Um, everything is going up. It's the everything rally. And the the way that uh, Metzner is talking about it and some other people is is that markets they want, like divided government and actually divided government with uh, you know a creature of the Senate like Joe Biden who knows Mitch McConnell and some of these others uh, from his time there uh, is potentially one in which deals get made. Uh, that is, is is that if Biden actually is running away from uh, the the progressives and towards the center, he might find someone to meet there in Mitch McConnell. And uh, and therefore, you know, you might have a circumscribed amount of things that can get done, but there there'll be more that could get done like infrastructure, um, things like that. So I think that. Uh, Whereas there's going to be less stimulus than there would be if there was a blue wave. Ultimately, I think that uh, the markets are liking this divided government right now. The proof is in the pudding, but that's how I'm thinking about it at this particular juncture. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together.
Yeah, very cogent analysis, as one would expect, Ed, from you being inside the Beltway for so many years. You know, look, I, I kind of feel the same way. Um, my feeling is that, uh, you know, this is a small net gain for uh, Republicans in the House. I think it's the sort of thing that people like to talk about who are into politics. I think it's plus three seats. Don't think it really matters very much. 435 uh, representatives looks pretty close to a break even for me. Too close to call on the Senate. Uh, the arithmetic not uh, deep thoughts here about the presidential election, but the arithmetic clearly uh, favors Joe Biden at this point. And so that would be my baseline case. Obviously, anything can still happen uh, early in the game, but it, it seems quite likely that we are going to have a President Biden. Which brings us to the next question, which is to you, Ed, what is your framework for analyzing the impact of a Biden presidency and a Republican Senate? Do you agree with the narrative that this has the potential to be the most negative outcome? Yeah, I think that uh, w the way that I would look at it is in terms of um, dispersion of outcomes, meaning that, you know, you're thinking in terms of probabilities of things that could happen. And for me, the dispersion of outcomes increased towards uh, a risk of worst case outcomes uh, with the divided government. But they also, um, you know, it, it, it sort of uh, shortened. So it's moved to, if you think about the bell curve, uh, let me see if I can put the bell curve from your perspective with the, the tail risk being over over here. Um, I think that, you know, if you had a, uh, a blue wave as an example, you would have a, a slightly bigger thing. Now you have a slightly smaller and it's shifted over to the, to the side. So the outcomes, uh, the central uh, tendency is more negative, uh, and then there's more tail risk. But uh, I think the dispersion of outcomes has been uh, concatenated. So that's how I'm thinking about it in terms of what the probabilities are. Because, you know, with uh, Biden and a blue wave, you had all sorts of potential possibilities, especially given the progressive wing of the party. You had the potential that you could pack the courts. You had the potential that you could have a three or four trillion dollar stimulus. Uh, you had the potential that you could have, um, you know, uh, Obamacare plus whatever you might want to call that. Uh, there are all sorts of possibilities that uh, were there. You know, you had an unfettered thing. And of course, that, you know, from a stimulation, a stimulative perspective, that's great because, you know, you'd get a lot of government spending. But, uh, you know, you had a huge dispersion of outcomes. Now it's been uh, reduced. You know, the, the room for Biden to maneuver is, is reduced, but it's also shifted in terms of potential conflict, making uh, more negative scenarios from a growth perspective. So I think overall, uh, I think that it's a net negative and that's how I'm looking at it. Yeah. Um, you know, the first thing I would say is obviously this is uh, this is speculative. We still have the potential of a runoff. There's some still there's votes are still being counted as we record this. Uh, I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic this morning, Ed. Um, you know, I think uh, every time we get a new president, maybe I'm a little bit hopeful. Um, I think that uh, you know, f first of all, my sense is uh, overall about Joe Biden that he has uh, he's not a socialist. He's never been the kind of guy who wants to burn down the house. Uh, I, so maybe it's just my optimism here uh, for the idea of a new era. Um, and uh, perhaps it's just some of the psychological uh, thing about finally getting out of the COVID era and moving forward. 
The country's obviously been going through some very difficult things. Look, here's a quick back-in-the-envelope analysis. Uh, assuming that Mitch McConnell uh, retains uh, the, the majority leader position in the Senate, one could say Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell, very much two men cut from the same cloth. They are both institutionalists. They have both been uh, career Washington politicians. They're both men uh, of roughly the same generation. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I think about uh, the role that uh, that Joe Biden played during the Obama presidency, negotiating uh, with Mitch McConnell directly, uh, and and maybe there's even the possibility. Look, Joe Biden has this very. Uh, challenging role uh, of effectively mediating between the very hard left-wing version of his party that, uh, and I'm going to get yelled at for this, but leans towards socialism. Uh, and on the other hand, he has a very mainstream uh, Democrat party uh, that he uh, that he that he is the leader of as well. Uh, and so perhaps it's not the worst thing in the world uh, for uh, President Biden to go uh, to his own party and say, guys, I'm sympathetic, but I got to deal with Mitch here. We got to cut a deal. Uh, so maybe it's the opportunity to uh, get some things done in Washington. Maybe it's the opportunity to be bipartisan. Uh, maybe it represents the opportunity to actually move forward. Now, I know I'm being an optimist here, and we may be having this conversation in February, and uh, it may not turn out that way. Uh, but that's certainly my hope. The other thing that I'm looking for here, uh, and I think this is really from a signaling perspective, I'm looking to see uh, who a President Biden chooses for his team. Uh, you know, things like, um, uh, you know, Council of Economic Advisors, National Economic Council. These are these are things that are very important uh, for people like us. But I'm also looking to see who he picks for Treasury Secretary, because that's really a major signal to the country about how he thinks about business, commerce and capitalism. Um, you know, my dream pick here uh, is he picks someone uh, who has three characteristics. Number one, uh, there's someone who uh, could absolutely has business experience, uh, someone who's got the trust of the business community. Uh, I would really like to see someone who comes not from the East Coast uh, establishment, um, you know, from an investment banking background. I'd love to see someone who comes with a left coast sensibility, someone who understands technology, uh, someone who has been a part of the new economy. I think that would be a, a really impressive signal to markets. Um, and finally, and this is just my fantasy pick, uh, I'd like to see him pick a Republican. I don't think it's going to happen, especially in these politically divisive times. But you could imagine uh, him picking someone like John Chambers, uh, a former co-chair, I believe, of, uh, of the McCain campaign, someone with deep tech experience, uh, obviously one of the early employees over at Cisco. Uh, he joined in the, in the 1980s. I think that would be an incredible pick. Uh, and then I was thinking about this, and and I realized, you know, we've never had a woman as a Treasury Secretary. Wouldn't it be great if he picked Meg Whitman? Uh, she's now looking for a project that now that uh, Quibi is uh, no longer with us. But I think that would be great, um, great signal to the country that uh, that Joe Biden believes uh, in business, that he believes in commerce, uh, and that um, and that you know this is really the the twenty trillion dollar question. Um, about where the country is going to go, and and I think a significant signal to markets. You know, um, it, we would definitely, uh, if people are interested in in our answers to this, they should definitely uh, see the David Metzner interview that I just did. I think it's going to be coming out Monday when this is coming out because he is very much in line with what you were talking about. We actually talked about the Treasury Secretary and his view in particular is that. Uh, 
that a Biden administration would be constrained by Mitch McConnell uh, in terms of who he could pick. So, uh, first of all, you, you'd never see Elizabeth Warren in there anyway, because the Republican governor of Massachusetts would re- appoint a, a Republican instead of her in the Senate. So that's not going to happen. Uh, but at the same time, even a Lael Brainerd uh, is considered probably too uh, left yeah. uh, and would not necessarily get confirmed. He talked about Roger Ferguson, who uh, is a, uh, the former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, who's now at C- uh, TIA CREF, uh, as a potential kind of person who might get in there. Uh, he's a black guy. Uh, I think that, you know, from a diversity perspective in terms of women and, uh, and uh, uh, minorities, that we're going to see a lot of people in in positions like that in Treasury and elsewhere in the cabinet. So that's going to be a a thing. But again, it's going to be constrained. I think the difference between what I'm thinking about and what you and David are thinking is that you're definitely thinking about the the optimistic side of the scenarios. Uh, The central tendency from his perspective is also towards what you're thinking about. I'm actually I see the the shift toward the the tail risk as uh, as the thing that I'm much more concerned about. I'm thinking about Mitch McConnell's statements when Obama was the president, how he wanted him to be a one term president. He was going to block everything that he did. I don't see that dynamic necessarily changing under a Biden administration. We just have to see. So I think that there is significant amounts of tail risk there that a divided government is actually not as functional a government, whereas you and David are definitely talking about the deal maker aspect and look at it in a much more positive way. Well, you know, there's also a calendar element here, Ed. I'm always an optimist uh, in November and December. I will be uh, a realist in January and probably a cynic by February and March. Uh, But right now, like, look, you know, I I just want to look at this with with the best uh, possible glass, excuse me, glass half full uh, perspective and think about what can be done. It would be great uh, if uh, Mitch and Joe got in a room and said, hey, how can we heal the country? How can we grow this economy? Uh, and how, of course, uh, can we stop this COVID pandemic uh, from taking the human toll that it's taken? And how can we stop it from uh, pushing us into recession? Yeah. yeah. The realities of Washington being what they are, we will see how that works out. Uh, here's another very traditional question for you, Ed. Why did stocks and bonds rally at the same time the day after the election? Yeah, it is a great question because, you know, we talked about that yesterday uh, when we did the RVDB uh, because of oil. And, uh, you know, the follow through for bonds was initially there. I think that the 10 year rallied to uh, 72 basis points uh, earlier this morning when I looked at it. Uh, and then, then we have this everything rally where everything is going up. Commodities, you know, oil's gone up, uh, gold and silver's gone up and shares have gone up. Um I mean, to be honest, it's looking more like our speculation that divided government is bullish for shares is uh, is what's happening here, that people like the configuration that it is. I, I, I'm, I think the jury's still out because, again, it's only two days now, not just one day, but the 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 level of um, of optimism you know the the spike upwards the the fall in the vix has been so great that you have to think about that i still hold out the possibility that what we're seeing is is technical in nature because so many people bought into 
this uh, this VIX spike theory that um, th they're unwinding those positions. And uh, while that unwind is happening, uh, we're just seeing the, the markets go up. So we just have to take a look and see over a longer period of time. I, I, at this point, it's, it's purely speculative. Yeah. And, you know, just to follow on that, I'm going to skip around here a little bit because there's another question that ties directly into this, uh, which is a little bit longer term in focus, which is, is the 60-40 portfolio truly dead? Uh, and if it is, would that be bad for bonds driving yields higher? Yeah, it's not dead. I mean, people are going to still do it. The real question is, is how helpful will it be in downdrafts uh, in the market and how sustained will downdrafts be? And w when's the next downdraft coming? Because, you know, the buy the dip mentality has really powered through during this uh, uh, this this whole period, including the, the March, uh, you know, 35 percent drawdown, the 35 percent drawdown. It looks like a blip at this particular juncture in the same way that the 1987 market crash looks like a blip uh, on any chart. Uh, it, it didn't have any lasting impact or it hasn't had lasting impact at this juncture in the way that 87 didn't have lasting impact during that cycle. So uh, it, it remains to be seen. But I am uh, I'm firmly of the belief that when we have the next cyclical downturn, that the 6440 portfolio will underperform uh, because the 40% won't protect you against the 60% decline. Yeah, I mean, it's almost mechanistically constrained by arithmetic at, uh, at or near the zero lower bound. Yeah, it, it, it definitely. And, you know, uh, the interview that's out today, which is with Bill Campbell, we talked about going over the zero lower bound. You could go down to, say, you know, 80 basis points, and there's a lot of convexity in that. And if you, you know, have longer duration assets, then you can benefit. But that's about as far as you can go. All the data show that in Europe, in Japan, during the March uh, downdraft, uh, they got killed. You know, there was no protection whatsoever from the bond side of the portfolio. So I believe that, uh, you know, if a, a downdraft is sustained, unlike March, then the 60-40 portfolio will, will not do well. And it's at that point that people will start to look for ways to deal with that. Uh, pension companies and insurance companies are already looking for ways around it just because, you know, just from a yield pickup perspective, they have to. Uh, for ordinary citizens, uh, ordinary investors, I think it, it still has legs. Yeah. And here's a great question that I'm very curious to hear your answer to, which is, has being exposed to Ash and Rao changed your view of Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it has. Uh, I think I'm still, we, the, it would be nice to get Max in here to see what he has to say about yeah. that. Because uh, if people know, uh, Max is, uh, uh, he's like your foil in terms of you're the, uh, the young guy who's, uh, who's positive on uh, change in cryptocurrency. And Max is sort of like the old, older fuddy-duddy in yeah. terms of uh, not uh, being skeptical about. Uh, but for me, you know, I've been actually looking at Bitcoin and, you know, I've sent you some articles that I wrote way back in like 2014, 2013. Yeah. So I don't see my views having changed that much. What, what's your thought on this whole thing? Well, actually, you know, the next question to me 
uh, is uh, Ash, uh, what do you make of Bitcoin's price action uh, following the election? So we'll just tie it in. First of all, I should say, we've got to get Max on. You're absolutely right. I want him to yell, get off my lawn at me when it comes to all digital assets. I really enjoy it. Um, uh, you know, for me, that it's a question directly about price action. Obviously, Bitcoin is rallying at the moment. It's uh, it's just crossed actually 15K, I think, while we've been on this call. Um, look, in terms of the election, you, you were talking about this with uh, with relation to uh, the stock and bond correlation. It seems like all of these correlations are breaking down. I, I really don't know. Uh, is it uh, is it a flight to quality? Is it a correlation uh, to uh, to risk on on U.S. equity markets? Uh, really impossible to say. I think that there's also the possibility that there are fundamental drivers for this. Uh, there is uh, an uptick. Uh, on the uh, Bitcoin Lightning Network right now. Now, for those of you who aren't that close to it, this is a big deal because it's about transaction fees. It's about being able to uh, it's about being able to do transactions on the Bitcoin network for far lower costs. Right now, it's costing you about thirteen bucks. Excuse me to send Bitcoin uh, between people, um, which is obviously not really all that competitive when you think about Venmo uh, and PayPal and other uh, and other platforms like that. Uh, the Lightning Network is going to push that down to pennies. Uh, so this is something that could really move the needle in terms of uh, transforming Bitcoin uh, from a store of value solution to a medium of exchange solution. I think that's something that's really interesting. It's always a dynamic time in this space. I, I mean, I was going to say it's an exciting time now, but if you'd asked me uh, at any point since I've been following digital ledger tech, it's always an exciting time. Uh, and it is especially exciting. I mean, because we're thinking we're talking about paradigm shifts at Real Vision on a, on a continual basis now. And it does seem almost like, yeah, paradigm shift. Yeah, it look, it's a massive paradigm shift. It's a rolling paradigm shift. I don't know that you can ever really isolate a month or a week, except when there's a, there's a new tech rollout. The roadmap has been in place, uh, whether you're talking about for Bitcoin or Ethereum with Ethereum 2.0. These technologies uh, are only getting better. They're diversifying. There are more of them. Uh, there are more layer two solutions. Uh, this is uh, a space where if you're interested in the tech, it's only going in one direction, and that's better, faster, and cheaper. Excellent. Yes, well said. So you're you're uh, coming in, and Real Vision's coming in at the right time, uh, uh, having a tier that's specifically dedicated to that. And it just goes back for me to the education question that we started out with that yeah. it's, you know, ramping up in terms of the education, understanding what this space is all about, right. uh, what the opportunities are. That's really where it's at. Yeah. And look, you know, in, in terms of education, this is something that I believe in uh, because I think it's going to change the way that uh, we conduct our lives, the way that we conduct business, the way that commerce gets done, the way that banking gets done, the way that finance gets done. Uh, is Bitcoin going to 14000 before it goes to 16000 You know, I'm not trading these assets. That's not a question uh, that interests me intensely. I'm interested in talking to people uh, who do focus on those kinds of questions because I'm interested about their insights about the space. Uh, but as you said, uh, this is really about education. It's really about understanding the long-term trajectory of this technology, the promises, the risks, uh, and putting that into a broader context. And, and that's exactly what we are here to do. Excellent. Well said. Yeah. So next question, uh, this one's to you, Ed. What will today's Fed meeting mean for markets? How will the Fed act in a way that responds to the outcome? Please be as specific as you possibly can. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll be specific. The Fed's not going to do anything. They're not going to signal anything. Uh, we're, we're in a pause period right right now because uh, we, we had a, a, a crisis 
Um, and then we had a V-shaped recovery off of the bottom. Now we're moving into a, a, a secondary phase where it's less critical and it's more sort of, how, how would I put it, um, it's more chronic. And so I think that to a degree, fiscal authorities are, are called on and there's nothing the Fed can do with their existing toolkit except go turbo on that existing toolkit in this particular uh, part of, of the crisis. So the next phase of the crisis is really where we have to be asking what the Fed is going to be doing. What are the tools that the Fed has available and what are the likely things that they're going to do with those tools? Interestingly enough, you know, just today, uh, this, that, this is today when we're taping as opposed to when this is coming out. Uh, we have that interview with Bill Campbell on digital currencies. That's one of the things that the, that the Fed and other central banks can do. But in terms of specifically what I think the Fed will do if and when they're called upon to act more, and that's not right now, I think it's going to be uh, you know, more qualitative easing as opposed to quantitative easing. That is going out the risk spectrum into buying more corporate bonds and potentially down into the junk arena in terms of junk ETFs. That's number one. They're already, uh, they've already said they're going to do that. So that's the first thing that they're going to do beyond quantitative easing. The second thing is most likely yield curve control. They've already done all of the research. They're ready to go. I think that that's the second thing that they could uh, implement uh, beyond what they're already doing quantitative easing-wise. All the other stuff is, I think, more contentious. The Bank of England has already investigated negative interest rates. Uh, the Fed has been more reticent about its uh, desire to get into negative interest rates, which is really just a tax uh, on banks. You know, negative interest rates don't work. They, they haven't worked in Europe. They haven't worked in Japan. They haven't worked in any place that has tried them. And so the Fed really doesn't want to go down that road. So then you have a uh, if if it doesn't work with going into qualitative easing and yield curve control, which is basically pinning uh, you know long term rates at some specific level, then the Fed has two other options. One is negative interest rates, which I think they're reticent to do, and then the second is digital currencies, which is something that uh, I talked about with Bill Campbell. And part of that is crediting accounts, working hand in glove with uh, the uh, the fiscal authorities to give the Fed more fiscal type of actions. Uh, but that's way yeah. down the line. Uh, that's not going to come anytime soon. I think we should really be just be thinking about qualitative easing and yield curve control over, say, the next six months uh, as potential, but not necessarily likely outcomes. Yeah. And that question is actually the perfect prologue to our penultimate question here. Uh, and it's a great Ed Harrison question. How do you think about the election outcomes in terms of their impact on investment grade and high yield bonds? Also, what about illiquid bank loans? And I would just add to that, uh, for people who aren't familiar with that market, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how, uh, in your view, things like, um, things like um, leverage loans function in the credit markets? Yeah, so I mean, uh, what they're talking about is, uh, you know, corporate, uh, those are the higher sterling type of things. And then underneath, there are, uh, you know, less sterling type of assets uh, that have higher 
uh, lower credit ratings and higher returns as a result to compensate you for their riskiness. You can have it either through a loan uh, from a bank uh, that is uh, not a an asset that you can trade, uh, but you can actually you can take those loans and put them into securities. Or you can have them as securities, which are bonds, like junk bonds, people call them. Really high yield securities is what we used to, the practitioners would like to call it. They don't like to talk about it. It's being junk, um, <laughs> as, you can, as you can probably imagine. Not a great marketing term. No, not at all. So uh, my thinking is, is, is that um, uh, those markets are the canary in the coal mine just because they're lower credit quality. Before anything happens in the, in the investment grade market, it's going to happen first in the leverage loan market, and it's going to happen in the high yield market. And so we'll see a deterioration first in terms of downgrades of credits and then in terms of defaults, uh, bankruptcies. Um, and moreover, because the covenants are very uh, weak relative to where they had been before, the recovery of assets will be much lower. So in a worst case scenario uh, where you get, get default, you know, you're getting pennies in the dollar as opposed to, you know, 50 or 60 percent that you might have gotten in a, in a different scenario. You'll get more like 10 percent of, of your recovery. So that's a, a pernicious outcome. And I think that the Fed, going back to what we were talking about before in terms of, you know, moving down the risk spectrum, they would actually, you know, wade into that market uh, aggressively uh, as their first port of call of the things that they need to do next. So in terms of a Biden administration, I think it's it really it, it boils down to how uh, the tail risk in terms of Biden and McConnell not coming together in terms of getting the economy restarted and uh, COVID sending us into a double dip recession. If that comes out to pass, that is no stimulus, double dip, then the Fed will step in into those markets. And then we just have to see whether or not the Fed stepping in will be enough to prevent uh, those markets melting down. So that's how I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you've set me up to end on a lighter note here, which is, uh, and this was obviously to you, which is any soccer hot takes to share with Ash. And also, what are your feelings about Chelsea this far? Yeah, uh, I want to know what your feelings about Tottenham are, because uh, I don't know if you had followed Gareth Bale scoring the winning goal, uh, coming back to Tottenham scoring for Tottenham for the first time in seven years. I, I know that you're a Tottenham fan. I'm excited about uh, Chelsea. We've got Kristen Pulisic, who's an American who work, who's on them. And, you know, they have a huge uh, crew of young talent. Um, I, I'm sad to see some of the older guys not be there. Like Willian went to uh, Arsenal. Uh, Olivier Giroud is not playing for, um, you know, he's not playing in the first team. But Chelsea's a young team, young, dynamic. We're talking these... 20, 23, 24-year-olds running around, uh, you know, creating lots of goals. Very exciting to watch. Yeah. I now know how people feel at parties when I start talking about finance. <laughs> <laughs> so what, no, what, what, what's your thought here on uh, Tottenham, though? Uh, you as the American who is wading into, are you going to get a Gareth Bale jersey? That's my question. I think what I really need to do is get a subscription to some service so I can start watching games live. Yeah, I, uh, you should get NBC Sports. Uh, uh, th that package, they have the Premier League, so you can watch that. 
Yeah, I'm curious. You mentioned uh, you mentioned an American player on Chelsea. Do you think that uh, players from the U.S. playing in the Premier League are something that could potentially drive more interest in soccer here in America? Yeah, you know uh, the goalie Tim Howard. Uh, who played for Everton? He was the, a U.S. goalkeeper. Uh, people, you know, they were very interested in uh, at watching Alexi Lalas. Uh, you know, he played over in uh, Europe. So, you know, if people can see their countrymen over, it definitely uh, has a play. And the United States is a huge market. I mean, when you think about soccer being an international sport, you know, football, uh, everyone thinking about it, and then it's not having coverage in the largest uh, market from a revenue perspective. You know, all of these leagues, uh, the Serie A, La Liga, um, the uh, Bundesliga, and the Premier League, they're all chomping at the bit to get uh, people interested in their leagues. The one league, by the way, of the big European leagues that is uh, the odd man out is uh, the French League. No one seems to care about what happens there. I mean, if they could get some Americans into the French League, maybe people would be more interested in the U.S. Yeah. And we've run long, as we always do when we do this. But I'm going to turn this over to you just to for final thoughts, uh, what you're going to be thinking about over the long weekend and how you generally see where we are right now. Yeah, so my final thoughts are... Uh, by the time this comes out, we'll have the jobless numbers, or, or sorry, we'll have the jobs numbers. We've already had the ADP numbers. We've had the jobless claims numbers. What I'm looking to see in general is how much of a downshift we have in jobs. Uh, we have the toggle, which is how many jobs are being added to the economy, and then how many being taken away in terms of people losing their jobs. Those are the jobless claims. Those two, how do they net out over time? I see a, a, a numbers going like this in terms of jobless claims. Like we're now in this period where we're going down. The potential is, is that jobless claims start to creep back up as a result of COVID. And then there are not enough jo new jobs being created to make up for that. So that to me is sort of where the rubber hits the road and all that stuff I was talking about with regard to the canary in the coal mine of leverage loans and uh, and junk bonds. So I'm looking at uh, jobs. That's that's where I'm thinking right now. It all starts there. Yeah, definitely, because that's where you get your income and that's where your spending comes from. And if uh, if we have a a, a pernicious uh, uh, period there, it could jeopardize uh, the U.S. recovery. Yeah, very well said, Ed Harrison. Thanks for joining us. To everyone out there. Please enjoy your weekend. And to all those who have served, thank you for your service.